What Balaam did next, after the blessings of the people, what Balaam did next did more to tear down the Israelites than maybe anything anyone else could have done. In fact, what Balaam would do next, what Balaam would tell Balak next, would be the Achilles heel, would be the thing that would sink the Israelites over and over and over again. I'm reminded of history more recently. Mr. Khrushchev, the leader of the Soviet Union, there was a uh, meeting in the UN where they were talking about the decolonization of, 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 of Europe that was in Africa. And uh, the Prime Minister of England was up giving a very spirited speech. And Mr. Khrushchev did not like what was being said uh, by the capitalistic Prime Minister of England. So he began to bang his fist from his spot at his seat in the UN meeting there, began to bang his fist on his desk, and those with him were banging his fist and uh, creating a disruption. At some point, he even took off his shoe and began to bang his shoe there to create a raucous and a distraction. Later, Mr. Khrushchev would, when it was his turn to speak, he spoke through a translator and he spoke the infamous words in regards to communism. He said this, he said, We will bury you. We will bury you. I'm curious, how many of you remember uh, those words that were spoken uh, way, way back when? Uh, some of us have seen it and read about it in history books. Others of us were alive and experienced it. Amen? I was not there to experience it. Uh, in fact, I think even my, ch- my father is just a child. Most of us uh, here that were around in 1960 when that was done probably were very young. But Mr. Khrushchev said, we will bury you. Now, clearly Russian communism during the Cold War did not bury the United States by way of a militant course. There was no atomic missiles that were launched into our country. There was a close call of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and many of you may remember reading about that and studying that, but there was never actually any war that went on. There was just a lot of armament that went on. And while the Soviet Union would fall apart, Mr. Khrushchev's words were, in a lot of ways, prophetic. Because what was not accomplished with missiles and armament has been accomplished through classrooms and philosophies and, and our public university system. Communism is slipping into this country and becoming a very quickly becoming a fad. During the last presidential election, one of the candidates was asked, what is the difference between your party and socialism? And that candidate could not answer the question because there is no difference between that candidate's party and socialism. And socialism is the child of communism. Socialism brings in and ushers in communism. The government begins to take more and more away from its people and eventually it wants to take everything away from the people and then distribute and distribute and distribute. And an economy that uh, steals away the incentive of its people to work is an economy that will eventually fail. Let me just say tonight, and I try not to get political in the pulpit, but let me just say tonight, and be very clear on this, the government is not the solution to your problems. Government handouts and entitlements never bettered anybody's life. Um, In fact, government handouts and entitlements to able-bodied working people only cripple them and enslave them to the very government that gives them those handouts. You say, well, what's the solution? Get off your backside, go get a job, and pay your own bills. We're living in a country where communism is becoming more and more of a fad as it's being our, our, our university students are being brainwashed by the droves. Balak what he could not do with a sorcery curse, while he could not use his religiosity, his occultism, to, 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 to give out an enchantment and a curse on the Israelites, what he would say in private to Balak as they walked down off that mountain would indeed be the very thing that would allow the the not the sinking from without, but the sinking of Israel over and over again from within. Tonight we're going to look at how those mistakes, that advice, that scheme that Balak followed to bring the Israelites down, 
has found its way into our churches across this great land and across this great world. And I'm going to venture to guess that in the privacy of some of your homes, the doctrine of Balaam has found its way into your home. And if it's found its way into your home, then it has found this way, its way into this church. What did the angel, uh, what, what did uh, John uh, write here in Revelation 2 to this church? He said, there are all kinds of good things I can say about your church, but, but, there are those amongst you who've given in to the doctrine of Balaam. Now, I'm going to say tonight that I believe our church and the great churches of this country have given in in some ways, or some faction of the crowd has given in to the doctrine of Balaam. This evening I propose that this doctrine lives on inside of our churches today. I propose that Balaam's wicked counsel is the cause of churches being carnal and filled with unholy and unrighteous living. Tonight, let's consider Balaam's doctrine or teachings. Let's look at the three main beliefs that prop up this false doctrine. Point number one of the message tonight, the doctrine of Balaam is a doctrine of iniquitous counsel. Is a doctrine of iniquitous counsel. Look back with me at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14. The Bible says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, look, look, look at this, who taught, who taught Balak, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. What does the word doctrine mean? All the word doctrine means is teachings. Teachings. What were the teachings of Balaam? What did Balaam, the prophet Balaam, teach, uh, 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 teach the king Balak and how to cast a stumbling block? Before the Israelites. Well, we'll get more to that in a minute. But let me just say a few things this evening about counsel. Counsel is a very important part in Scripture, both for good and bad. In fact, the Bible has a whole lot to say about counsel. Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1, we find these words. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. The counsel of of the ungodly. First Kings chapter 12, we find the story of Rehoboam after he had taken over the throne of his father. And here he is coming in and, and, and is he gonna, uh, tax the people the way his father did or is he gonna lay off the taxes and win over their loyalty? And so Rehoboam goes to the old men and seeks their counsel and then goes to the young men who were inexperienced and sought their counsel. First Kings chapter 12 and verse 8 says, but he forsook the counsel of the old men which they had given him, and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him and which stood before him. He forsook the counsel of the wise men and embraced the counsel of the young, inexperienced men who were fools. Let me just say tonight to our teenagers, you don't need to go to another teenager to find out the answer to life's problems. Amen? They haven't lived life long enough to know the answers. If you're in the seventh grade, the tenth grade girl uh, 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 that you look up to in high school, she doesn't have the answer to all of life's problems. You say, who should you go to? Why don't you go to your youth pastor's wife? Why don't you go to the pastor's wife? Why don't you go to one of our deacon's wives? Why don't you ask them uh, what they think? The Bible tells us that the older women of the church, the experienced women of the church, ought to be teaching the younger women how to live the Christian life. Let me say today that if you're a young person and you're 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, in your 20s there, you don't necessarily have all of the answers. Let me tell you, when I arrived at college as an 18-year-old kid, I thought I was going to go in there and teach everybody everything about how to do ministry. And I got there and after walking around the campus and, and I got lost on the campus, I said, forget that idea, I don't even know where I'm at. I went to classes and the professors were making my head spin. I said, whoa, okay, I guess I'm not going to teach anybody anything around here. I got home from uh, college at uh, Christmas break of my freshman year and uh, someone asked me, have you learned anything? And I said, I learned that I really don't know anything. I learned that I really don't know anything. And can I tell you, I've made it to age 33 in life. Every day that I get older is another day I realize how little I actually know. How little I actually know. When I was 21 and 22, boy, I thought I had the world figured out. At age 33, I'm getting less and less sure that I have anything figured out. 
About the only thing that's sure that I have in my life is the Word of God and the principles that it teaches. Where I have held to those, I have been okay. But where I've had opinions that weren't necessarily based in Scripture, boy, I have found that uh, many times to fail me. Let me, uh, this evening, as we talk about counsel, uh, for those of you that are part of the leadership team of our church, or those of you that seek to want to give others good godly counsel, I would like to share with you uh, nine tips about counseling. And I try very closely to follow these principles in counseling. If you got a pen, they're going to be up on the screen. Only a couple of them will be up there at a time, so write fast. And I'd really encourage you, if you're part of the leadership team of our church, to take these down, write these down, go back and review them and study them and, and consider them. We'll probably go over them in a leadership team meeting down the road. But uh, but this, this will be for everyone in the church. Number one, uh, uh, principle number one, pray for God's wisdom before you counsel. Pray for God's wisdom before you counsel. Literally, the very first words off my lips every morning are, Ouch. No, uh, uh, as I climb out of bed and everything snaps and pops. I mean, no, I'm teasing. The, uh, the first words off my mouth every morning as I'm climbing out of bed is, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to face today, but I know you love me and I know I love you and I need your wisdom to know how to handle the situations that I'm going to face. Can I tell you something that in the seat I sit in as a pastor, I see the, the powers of darkness at great work on a regular basis. It's a regular thing where I'm getting called into a living room where a husband and wife are fighting. Or I'm getting called in the middle of the night uh, over someone who has a, a loved one who's going in the hospital. And people are hurting and people are fighting and, 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 and Satan is attacking. And uh, Every day I wake up, I don't know what I'm going to face that day. But I know this is there is no problem that, can't, that comes across my path that God cannot give me the wisdom to know how to handle it. There are times people show up in my office unannounced, and if I haven't prayed for wisdom, I'm I'm already behind the eight ball. But if I know I've got a counseling appointment, I take time to get alone and get on my knees and pray and ask God to give me His wisdom so that I'm not counseling them with earthly wisdom, I'm counseling them with godly spiritual wisdom. Number one, pray for godly wisdom for you, counsel. Number two, counsel with a heart of care and compassion. It is really, really easy to be cold toward others in our counseling. Well, if you quit being so stupid, you wouldn't have so many problems. Listen, if that's the attitude you take in your counseling, you're not going to be a lot of help to anybody. By the way, kids, don't use that word. Amen? Don't go around calling other people that. Uh, there was a pastor that had a sign on his desk that said, you can't fix stupid. He didn't have too many counseling sessions. <laughs> uh, and I have this written down below. This isn't on the screen. but And this is a phrase you've probably heard before. Remember, people don't care about how much you know until they know about how much you care. And if you're going to counsel people, they've got to know you love them. What does the word compassion mean? It means to co-suffer. To co-suffer. To get down and feel their pain with them. Listen, you may not understand why they've made the decisions they've made. You may not understand uh, how they could be uh, as... as uh, uh, poor in their decision-making as they've been. It's not your place to sit there and judge them. It's your place to show compassion and care and try to help them. Number three, ask a lot of open-ended questions. Ask a lot of open-ended questions. Become, and I have this written down here as well, become a good listener. Never jump to conclusions until you have gathered the entire story. You may think you know how the story is going to end, and you'd be surprised. Sometimes things take some really funny twists. You may think that you have it figured out. Uh, I've learned this in marriage is my wife wants me to listen to her more than she wants me to solve her problem. And in counseling, you've got to handle things the same way. You listen and you ask open-ended questions. Not yes-no questions, open-ended questions. And you let them do the talking. And you let them get the whole story out. Sometimes you might have to listen for 30 minutes, an hour. I have sat and listened to people for two and two and a half hours sometimes. But you ask open-ended questions and you make sure you gather as much information as possible. Number three, I have this written down. Listen, listen, listen. Listen, listen. I don't just mean hear them. I mean listen to them. Oftentimes when I counsel, I've got a a blank 4x6 card out and I'm taking notes down while I'm listening to them. 
What am I doing? I'm gathering as much information as I can so that I can fully understand. I don't just want to hear someone. I want to listen to what they're saying. I want to understand the emotion of what they're saying. Number four, pray while listening. Pray while listening. You're sitting there and they're talking. And listen, if you ever come in my office with a problem, I'm going to listen to you and I promise you while you're talking, I'm sitting there and I'm praying in the back of my, my head, Lord, give me wisdom to know exactly how to help this person. Lord, give me an understanding heart so that I understand them. Give me a spirit of compassion so I can be compassionate and caring toward them. Give me temperance and long-suffering as I've told this person a hundred times what to do and they've ignored my counsel every time. Amen. Pray while listening. Number five, seek to diagnose the root cause of the problem, not just the symptoms. Seek to diagnose the root cause of the problem, not just the symptoms. What if I was a doctor and you came to me with a runny nose and, uh, and a, um, a, uh, you, you had watery eyes and you had a sore throat, and, I came, and you came to my office and said, Doctor, uh, I'm not feeling well, and you, gave, you told me all your symptoms. And I said, well, boy, here, here's some Tylenol cold and sinus. Just go home and take that, and you'll feel better in a few days. Well, well, Doc, I've already taken that. Well, you need to take double the dosage. You know what I'm doing? I'm masking the symptoms, but I'm not getting down to the fact that there's a sinus infection down inside the body that needs to be fought off with, with, with antibiotics. You're not coming to me so I can tell you to go buy an over-the-counter drug. You would be coming to me if I was a medical doctor because you wanted me to give you uh, something that would attack the source of the problem. So many times I'll have people come to me and they've been to other people for counseling, especially secular counselors and even sometimes religious counselors. And uh, they'll tell me their problems and I'll say, well, what has the common advice been? And all they're telling me is, well, they told me to do this. And the, the advice is simply covering up. It's masking the symptoms, but it's not getting down to the source of the problem. It's not getting down to the fact that there is a relationship issue between that person and God potentially. And there is a problem deep down in the soul. So in your, in your praying for wisdom, in your praying while listening, you're asking God to give you uh, sound uh, advice that will not just help fix a, a symptom for a short term, but will get down to the source of the problem. The next step I have written down here, number six, is use lots of Scripture. Use lots of Scripture. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper. Sharper than any two-edged sword. You say, is the Bible a sword? It's called a sword, but Hebrews 4 says it's sharper than a sword. What does it do? It pierces and divides asunder the soul and the spirit, the joint and marrows, and the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is the solution to every problem. Whether you come in my office with a marital problem or a work problem or whatever it is, I'm, I can take you, I ought to be able to take you to the Word of God that was written before the history of mankind was ever made and say, the answers to your problem is right here. Can I tell you something today? This book is archaic, but this book is relevant. It is relevant. You say, well, uh, the type of drug I've got an issue with wasn't even around when the Bible was written. It doesn't matter. The solution to your drug problem is found right here inside the pages of the Bible. The music that I'm addicted to didn't exist when the Bible was written. It doesn't matter. The solution to your problem is right there in Scripture. Don't sit there and give them your opinion. Boy, make sure your opinion is based steeply in the Bible. And the other thing I'll say here too, and I try to preach this way. I've, I've sat in a lot of churches and I've heard preachers preach and they'll read half a verse and they'll say, close your Bible, it's time for me to preach. Or you don't even need to open your Bible tonight, I'm going to read half a verse and I'm going to preach to you. And I've heard preachers preach for 40 minutes and everything they said was based out of Scripture, but they didn't quote one verse. They didn't have the, the, the people look at a single verse. And I'm here today to tell you that you'll leave, you'll leave a church like that and you will have been fed biblical truths, but they won't have been built on biblical verses. And if you think the advice is coming from me, you can shun it. But if you see it's coming from the Word of God, boy, it's a whole lot harder to shun that. And so as you're giving that counsel and that advice, 
open the Word of God and slide it in front of the eyes of the people you're counseling and have them look at the pages of Scripture. Have them read the Scriptures themselves. Number seven, connect others to God, not to yourself. Oh, this is a common mistake counselors make. Uh, uh, that, that those people become uh, attached or they leech onto the counselor. If you come to me for advice, and we may have to meet several times, the end game is for you to be able to stay connected to God and not need me anymore. And I would recommend if you're going to give advice, you do the same. The eighth step, give the person tangible things that they can do to better their situation. Generally, I will write down some things that the person needs to do on a, on a card or on a piece of paper, and I'll hand that to them and I'll say, go out and do these. I would call that like a writing out a prescription uh, for the person. You're giving them things to do that will help them obey the Word of God so that they can better their situation. And then lastly, but definitely not least, in fact, as important as any of the rest of them, is follow up. Follow up. If you give someone advice... Well, you better make sure you follow up and make sure they follow that advice. I hope that's a blessing to, to those of you here that uh, are seeking to give counsel to others or maybe have people that come to you for counsel, but follow that, that, uh, that plan. Here in, in uh, the doctrine of Balaam, we have two aspects of this. We have those that seek, or rather those that give counsel. Right? You had Balaam who was giving bad Counsel. Don't give bad counsel. But then you have Balak who received bad counsel. Christian, can I ask you tonight, who has your ear? You see, I preach in this pulpit three times a week. If you're faithful to our church, you hear me preach three times a week. If you come to my Sunday school class, you hear me a fourth time. You go to a Sunday school class, you hear a fourth message. Some of you come out on Friday nights to our, our addictions deliverance ministry, and you hear several teachers. Some of you uh, uh, have other means of getting the Bible put into your ears, and that I'd say praise the Lord. But can I tell you that if you listen to me preach for three hours a week, you know the world is preaching a sermon to you the rest of the week? And their sermon is in direct contradiction to my sermon? Direct contradiction? Who has your ear? Who are you listening to? You say, well, I listen to it, but I don't necessarily heed to it. If you're not constantly objecting to the message of the world and making a mental note, no, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. That counsel's wicked. That counsel's wrong. Then in time, that's going to tick away at you. It's going to tick away at you. It's going to affect you. It's going to change your opinions. And one day you're going to sit there and the pastor's going to preach on something and you're going to go, I don't know if I agree with that. If the pastor's preached about it from the Word of God, then you have given your ear to the wrong counsel and you are going to pay the consequences for it. Tonight we're looking at the doctrine of Balaam, iniquitous counsel. Iniquitous counsel. That's not the only thing I see here out of Revelation chapter 2 and in our story in Numbers. I see, uh, number one, a doctrine of iniquitous counsel. Number two, I see a doctrine of immoral living. A doctrine of immoral living. Look back at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14 with me. The Bible says there, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, notice this last part, and to commit fornication. Take your Bibles with me over to Numbers chapter 25. Fornication. Immorality. This idea of being immoral or being impure or being stained by sinful lifestyles and being soiled by the world. What happened here? They're walking down off the mountain and Balaam could not publicly, could not professionally, uh, could not curse God's people, but on his way down the mountain. While Balak is really upset and worked up with him, Balaam uses his professional uh, uh, experience to tell Balak how he can hurt and injure and sink the Israelites. What does he say to him? He says, I want you to take those pretty little girls down in your camp and I want you to send them down and I want you to let those girls flirt with those Israelites. And those Israeli boys 
are going to hook up with those Moabitess girls. And there will be bad, wicked, evil influence that will come in and you will taint, you will taint the Israelites. Numbers chapter 24, we find all of that going on with the, 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 the blessings and all that comes to a close. Look at Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. So it's working. Verse 2, And they called the people unto the sacrifice of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel." And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his, uh, his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish women in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. This Moabitess girl had gotten together with a boy and while while uh, Moses is punishing those for the whoredoms, this man and this woman, they get together and they're in the face of Moses. They're committing an immoral act and, and in a way that can even be seen. And this young man, uh, Phineas, the Bible says he was zealous for the Lord. He took a javelin and went over there and he killed them in their immoral act. And God was pleased with that action. Uh, that God was pleased with that, that particular set of vigilante justice. Now things work different today. and God does not want you to go around and kill people who are living immorally. God will punish them. But God was for it there. God was for it in that particular instance. Let me ask you this evening. Are you at all concerned with fitting in with the culture? you concerned about that? Do you want the culture to approve of the way you talk, the way you act, the way you live? Are you concerned with fitting in with what Hollywood is putting out? Are you concerned with fitting in with what our public universities are putting out? Because if you are, then you are not going to live in line with this Bible. Our Bible is going upstream against the culture. And if you want to go with the flow, then my friends, you're going to be in a bad spot when it comes to God and His Word. Our culture teaches, if it feels good, just do it. You know what? If your body wants to do it, and if it feels good to your flesh, go for it. Drink whatever you want to, smoke whatever you want to, inject whatever you want to, pop any pill you want to, sleep with whoever you want to. If it feels good, do it. Boy, that's the message that's being preached by the culture. Our schools pass out birth control. Our culture says uh, it's common to live together before marriage. Oh, just move in together and, and, and you gotta try each other out. It's like taking a car for a test drive and you gotta see, uh, how compatible you are on every level with that person. And if you're compatible, oh, well then you can get married. Funny enough, people who end up living together that end up getting married, uh, have a higher divorce rate than anybody else. I guess that theory doesn't really hold water, does it? Our culture says after three dates with someone, it's okay to have physical relations. Uh, that should be the norm. That should be the norm. There was a day in our culture not that long ago. In fact, I'm only 33, but I can remember a day in our culture when if you, uh, uh, if you uh, were willing to give up your purity before marriage, you were ostracized. You were looked down upon. You were pushed to the side. You were treated like, What? You know, in some states, it's still on the books that it is illegal. It is illegal to give up your purity. Now, those rules aren't enforced, but way back in some books, way back, that used to be the norm in our country. You say, Pastor, that's old-fashioned. The Word of God is old-fashioned, and the Word of God is right. 
I can remember as a young guy, it had been late 80s, early 90s, my, my uh, mom and dad were picking up this uh, couple uh, who were uh, poor, they were down and out, and we were, they lived around the corner from us, we were giving them a ride to church, and uh, we had asked them their names, and I think my dad asked the young lady her name first, they were, it had been in their 20s, and the young lady gave her name, and uh, she gave her last name, they were living together, uh, but it was such an embarrassing thing that he went along with her maiden name, just so no one would know that they weren't married. And so for the longest time, everybody called him Mr. We'll say Smith, even though his last name wasn't Smith, and he was embarrassed to tell anyone else that that wasn't his last name. I remember just a couple of years ago, we had a couple that wanted to join our church. And uh, they couldn't join the church because they were living together. And I was the outreach pastor, so I had the joy and privilege of sitting down in their living room and saying, you can't join our church. And they looked at me like, what? Why not? And I said, well, I was as kind and gracious as I could. I said, well, Scripture says that it is a sin to live together without being married. And the two of you are enjoying what only a married couple should be enjoying. And unless you're willing to move out or get married, you're welcome to attend our church, but you cannot be in the membership of the church. And he looked at me, And again, this is 20 years removed from my mom and dad bringing that couple to church. He looked at me and he said, you know what? I think you're right. I think we are living in sin. He said, no one's ever told me that before. I had no idea. That's where we're at today as a culture. Some of you might be sitting here today and you think, Pastor, it's a sin? And I'm here to tell you that it's a sin. It's a sin. Letter A, let me give you some principles here to avoid the doctrine of Balaam when it comes to immoral living. Letter A, notice the principle of unequally yoked. The principle of unequally yoked. Second Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness. And this verse means a lot of things, but one thing for certain we can draw from this is that if you have Jesus Christ and He has redeemed you from your sins, He's given you salvation, it is absolutely a sin if you know you're saved to marry someone that you know is not saved. Oh my goodness, I can't even begin to tell you how many people I have seen who are frustrated in life, frustrated along the way because they're saved and their spouse isn't and they want to go one way religiously and their spouse doesn't want to go with them and the children get put in a tug of war and they're pulled. And if you got saved, if you got saved after you were married, uh, then that's a whole other ball game. That's something else to deal with. But if you're a young person today here tonight and you know you've got the, 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 you're born again, you've got the love of Jesus in your heart, Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Do not marry someone who is not saved. Do not even consider him. You say, well, he's handsome. He's good looking. He's cut. He's built. He's educated. He's articulate. Uh, uh, he, he, he makes my heart swoon. Whatever it is you want to say, I'm here to tell you today, if he isn't saved, don't even put him down as a candidate of someone to look at. And I would say the same thing about the females. What happened here? These Moabites girls come in. Probably not dressed real modest. Oh, they were pretty because they looked different than the Israeli girls. And they came up and they batted their eyebrows just right and they smiled at the boys just right and they flirted just right. And next thing you know, these boys are running around, these Israeli boys are running around with these Moabitess girls in a union that was unequally yoked. You say, what do you mean by unequally yoked? Uh, saved should not marry lost. Light should not marry darkness. Let me just say this here as well, is that dating is the car that takes us to marriage. A couple of things on that. I don't think teenagers should date. Now, I'm going to state that clearly as my opinion. There's no verse, chapter and verse that says teenagers should not date. But good night, teenagers. Why are you going to climb in a car when you can't arrive at the destination? 
That makes no sense. You're going to ride around and you're going to fool around and what's going to end up happening oftentimes is you're going to get hurt. You're going to get your heart broken because some boy or some girl hurts you or breaks up with you or they're trying to push things too far and either things go too far and you live with a world of regrets or you have to break off the relationship. And I'll say today, I think a lot of couples end up getting divorced because we date, break up, date, break up, date, break up, date, break up. And then what happens when we get married... Things get tough. Well, we've already broken up 20 times in our junior high and high school years. Well, we'll just break up and we'll get a divorce because culture says it's okay to do that. Boy, but if you wait until you're old enough to get married and then you start dating around and you do it in a godly way, then you're committed to each other for life. And breaking consideration. Purity, uh, unequally yoked. If they're not saved, don't date them. Let me give you another one here. If you're faithful to church, and that boy or girl claims to be saved, but they're not faithful to church, you have no business dating them. Oh, a lot of people will say a lot of things to convince you that they're saved. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was seven years old, and I rode a church bus in, and I went to a vacation Bible school, and I went in the back, and I prayed some prayer. If there's no fruit in their life that shows that they're saved, then you need to run the other direction. You need to run the other direction. You don't need to have anything to do with them. You say, Pastor, is any of that going on in a church? I don't know. But I, to the young folks in here, I hope you're sitting up straight and tall. I hope your antenna's up. I hope you're listening with ears wide open. I hope you're taking mental notes. I hope you're even writing some of this down. And I hope you'll live by this. Because I promise you, if you will, I am saving you from a world of hurt. Listen, if you're ministry-minded, you should not date someone who's not ministry-minded. You've got a heart to serve God full time with your life, and some boy or some girl, they might even be sitting on a pew. If they don't have a heart to serve God full time with their life, then you should not even consider them. You need to be with someone who thinks the way you do and is heading the same direction in life that you are. The principle of being unequally yoked. How to defy or buck or run from the doctrine of Balaam when it comes to immoral living. Well, you need to have the principle of unequally yoked down. Letter B, the principle of purity dating. The principle of, a, of purity dating. Can you take your Bibles with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 1 here. And Paul here is addressing a very carnal church in the church of Corinth. There was all kinds of things going on. You had a man who is uh, 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 living incestuously with his mother-in-law. You had uh, all kinds of wickedness going on. This the town of Corinth, Corinth rather, was a very carnal place. There was public bathing places that would go uh, 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 on all over the city, and, and and immorality was very prominent. Maybe even more so than it is in our culture today. And Paul was trying to teach the church of Corinth how to go above and beyond and be pure and. In their relationships one with the other. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 7 says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Now, men, if you're married, touch your wife. Amen? Women, if you're married, touch your husbands. That's a good thing. Put your arm around her in church. I think that's wonderful. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, if, if, if married people... Uh, would start acting uh, the way unmarried people oftentimes do, that would be a good thing. Here's what oftentimes happens. Unmarried couples act like married couples. And then when they get married, they start acting like unmarried couples should. Some of you tonight, you're in here and you're married. I'm not going to pick on anybody. But the two of you are sitting like 14 feet apart. And then you get some dating couple and they're basically on top of each other. And I'm here today to say, if you're married, boy, be close to each other. Love on each other. And I'm not saying you got scoot over right now. Amen. And I'm, that, that's not how you're comfortable doing it. That's fine. But you ought to have those times where you're uh, very loving and, and touching and kind with each other. But if you're here today and you're not married, Paul says here, listen, I'm not, he's not saying that it's a sin to touch each other. But he's saying if you want to avoid fornication, if you want to run from it, it's good that you don't even touch each other. It's good you don't even touch each other. What happens when a single man reaches over and touches a single woman? There's this little fire that's kindled inside his heart. There is, and by the way, touching for a man means and feels something, uh, feels different than it does for a woman. To a woman, it provides security. To a man, it creates a flame of desire and passion uh, that is uh, meant to populate the world, but is not meant outside of the bonds of marriage. I'm here today to tell you that premarital relations is a sin. 
It is a sin. That is the very definition of what fornication is. And while the word fornication is harsh and tough and brash, it's a Bible word. It's a Bible word. And it ought not be named among Christians. Listen, uh, I'm just going to say it uh, out and out right here, right now. And that is this, is that you are to keep yourself pure to the wedding altar. To the wedding altar. Keep yourself pure. Let me make a statement to go beyond it. You are to keep yourself pure after the wedding altar. Purity in marriage is different than purity before marriage. But purity nonetheless. Purity nonetheless. You say, but pastor, but she's really pretty and I can't help but put my hands all over her. Then hurry up and marry her and put your hands all over her. But until then, keep your hands to yourself. But he's so handsome and his muscles are bulging and I just got to put my hands all over him. Then hurry up and marry the boy and then put your hands all over those muscles. Amen? But until then, the principle of purity dating. Some of you tonight say, Pastor, I have not been pure. I have been impure. Can I tell you that purity is a state of mind? And purity can begin right now. Right now. I was having a conversation with uh, a pastor friend of mine some time back. And he made a comment that lodged in my heart. And boy, it was good. He said this, he said, Some people get married filled with impurities. And they think that that marriage is going to take those impurities away. But the truth is, if you're impure before you get married, you're going to be impure after you get married. Let that sit in for a minute. If you're impure before you get married, you're going to be impure after you get married. Be pure, not only physically, but be pure mentally. The third principle I see here to avoid the doctrine of Balaam in regards to uh, immoral living is letter C, principle of marital fidelity. Principle of marital fidelity. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says, Marriage is honor and all in the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let me make this statement tonight. God is for monogamy. God is for monogamy. Listen, once you said your I do's, you're not to notice anybody else around you. Listen, you have come off the market and you are no longer available. One guy uh, uh, made a comment about how beautiful another woman was in front of me one time. And I looked at him and I said, you're a married man, that was inappropriate. And he said, look, I'm not going to buy, I'm just shopping. I'm just shopping. And I'm here today to tell you that if you're married, you're not even supposed to shop. You're not even supposed to shop. Listen, I'm supposed to have eyes for that pretty little gal sitting right down there, and I'm not supposed to look at anybody else. Now, you may notice another woman or another man to be good looking. You're, you're to dismiss that thought immediately. Dismiss that thought immediately. Why? Because your marriage is supposed to be undefiled. You say, but pastor, you don't understand how hard it is to live with my wife. And I'm going to tell you this. Double down and work on it. Double down and fix it. You understand how cantankerous and mean and nasty my husband is. In the, uh, in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, we are given the formula for marital bliss. It's three words and they all rhyme. You're supposed to leave mother and father. You're to cleave under your wife and you're to weave your lives together. This June, uh, this June coming up for Angela and I will be ten years of marriage. You know what I have found is that she is becoming more and more of the fabric of my life. More and more our lives are becoming woven together to where if you were to have me die, she would be lost. If you were to have her die, I would be lost. Why? Because we are becoming one and the same. And if you're going to run around on your spouse, clearly there is an effort that's been left from cleaving and weaving. And I'm here to tell you today to get back to that. We've looked at uh, the doctrine of Balaam is number one, a doctrine of iniquitous counsel. Number two, a doctrine of immoral living. Number three, a doctrine of idol worship. 
Look back down with me at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14, if you still have your place there. The Bible says this, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast uh, there uh, them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice unto idols, sacrifice unto idols, and to commit fornication. Back in Numbers chapter 25, where we were a few minutes ago, the Bible says, And Israel joined himself unto Baal, Peor, unto Baal. Israel joined himself unto Baal. What happened was that these pretty little girls wiggled their way into their lives and they began to date these girls and fool around with these girls and the next thing you know, they're going off to some Baal party with these girls and they're getting down on their knees and they're worshiping an idol. Now what Balaam could not accomplish with a curse, he's now accomplished. He's now accomplished through whoredoms. Now he has them worshiping the God of the Midianites. Boy, it's going to be really hard for these Israeli boys to get together in an army and go in and kill these girls and kill their families and kill the other Moabites when they themselves are buying into that religion. In fact, if you read through Numbers, what you find is that they do eventually go on and take Midian and Moab and they kill the men, but they bring back the women. And Moses confronts them outside the camp and says, Hey! What are you doing? Why didn't they kill the women? Because they now had an affection toward the women. They didn't want to kill them. Remember how I said that this doctrine of Balaam would continue to sink Israel generation after generation? As you read through the Old Testament, what do you find as being Israel's greatest struggle? Boy, they kept getting twisted up with the wrong girls. Remember remember Samson? Remember how he had his eye on the Philistine girls? He's not the only one. And they kept going and bowing down and worshiping the wrong idols. Some of you here tonight, you've got the immoral thing. You've got that licked. You are pure in your heart. You're pure in your mind. But maybe tonight a different part of this has gotten you. Letter A, we see structured idolatry. Structured idolatry. All throughout the Bible we find people bowing down to a graven image. In fact, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5 says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord uh, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto the children, unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me. And so, direct correlation, those that bow down to idols hate the one and true and living God and His version of righteousness. What are some examples of structured idolatry that fall into our culture today? Well, uh, uh, how many of you ever seen a picture of a Buddhist temple where you've got hundreds of people down on their face uh, before a, a Buddha there? That would be an example of structured idolatry. Uh, how about uh, in, in some of the local churches around here, people that bow down to some graven image of a saint? You say, Pastor, that's idolatry? That is full-blown Old Testament idolatry. You say, but that were, they were good people in the Bible. They may have been good people, but they weren't God. And they we're not supposed to bow down to them. Don't think too many people here tonight are struggling with structured idolatry, but letter B, we find subtle idolatry. Subtle idolatry. Take your Bibles with me over to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Turn over with me to Colossians chapter 3. In verse 5. And I feel as though in the book of Colossians, Paul was saying to them, no, 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 you're not bowing down to idols, but you still have a problem with idolatry. Look at verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are un- upon the earth fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, covetousness, which is idolatry. Oh my! To the Christian, idolatry takes on a new form. Look, I would be shocked to find out that Mark Bonatonymous goes home tonight changes his clothes, walks into the spare bedroom, opens up the closet, flips the switch and all these purple lights come on. And there's this idol. And Mark gets down and makes obeisance. Mark, if I find out you're doing that, we need to have some counseling time. Amen? I'd be surprised if anybody in here is doing that tonight. But can I tell you that all of us in here on some level, if we're not careful, can become idolatrous in our covetousness. Oh, I want that car. Oh, I want that house. Oh, I want that purse. Oh, I want that job position. I want that health status. 
What did Paul say from a prison cell? I have learned whatsoever state I am in, therewith to be content. If my friend, if you are not content with what you have and where you are, then you are subtly struggling with idolatry. You are worshiping something that you can't have. That, my friend, is the doctrine of Balaam slipping into your life and slipping into our church. We all need to examine our hearts and ask this question. Am I idolatrous? Have I allowed idolatry, the idolatry of a greater paying job or a higher title or position? Or Listen, it can even be something as simple as, I want a position in the church for the wrong reasons. Covetousness. Colossians 3.5, Paul tells the church of, of Colossae, that is idolatry. Oh, you may not have gotten to idolatry through some unequally, unequally yoked union, but if we're bowing down to something we can't have, boy, subtly we're struggling with idolatry on our own level. Letter C, we see self-idolatry. Self-idolatry. Matthew chapter 23 verse 12 says, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. He that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Humanism is the concept of bowing down and worshiping one's self. I am going to worship. I remember there was a football player, Arian Foster. Every time he'd score a touchdown, he would bow. And they asked him, what's that mean? And he says, I am bowing down to the God in me and in the God in you. I am bowing to the God in me and the God in you. I don't need Jehovah. I don't need the God of the Bible. I am a God. By the way, a lot of our hip-hop culture is very much built on this idea of the artist being a God of their own. And you are a God of your own. But can I tell you, you don't have to listen to hip-hop to fall into that trap. You say, Pastor, what are some examples of self-idolatry? Well, I just really don't feel like going to church tonight, so I'm just going to stay home. Aren't you bowing down to your needs over what the Bible says to do? Well, I really don't feel like giving out tracts at stores and restaurants and wherever I go. My flesh just doesn't want it. Aren't you kind of bowing down to what you want instead of what Scripture says to do? Oh, well, well, well Pastor, I don't want to give up that TV show. I don't want to give up that language. I don't want to give up that addiction. I don't want to, I don't want to fast and pray when the Holy Spirit pushes me to do it. Because my flesh wants, my flesh wants. Oh no, we're not bowing down to Buddha. We're not bowing down to St. Jude. We're bowing down to ourselves. Christians, that is some of the most dangerous idolatry there is. Why do Baptist Church, listen, those that come on Sunday nights, you are the core of this church. You are all in. Or more so than most. But what if everybody in this room tonight, what if we all look deep down inside and said, I'm expelling the doctrine of Balaam on every level out of my life. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. You have every ounce of my being, God. And if You tell me to do it, I'm going to mortify my flesh and I'm going to do what You tell me to do. Boy, that's when we lay idolatry to rest. And that's when the church begins to advance forward in the community and see righteousness prevail. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed tonight. I shut the sermon down.